the total soccer show my name is taylor rockwell and we've got an international break on the horizon much to the chagrin of ryan bailey which means it's time to talk some us mnt we've got a strong roster we've got a head coach we've got some strong opposition this saturday 3 p.m we're hosting germany in connecticut and then the following tuesday night it's ghana in nashville here with me to preview our two opponents and the us mnt itself is the man the myth the legend newly returned to american shores it's joe lowry hi joe Yes, we're back. I can feel the stars and stripes running through my veins just in time for the U.S. men's national team's pair of friendlies this week. I am, it feels right, Taylor. So I left for my trip, like basically right after we recorded for the U.S.'s September friendly against Uzbekistan. And then you handled the the game against Oman. And I get back, just got back, you know, at a, a decent time last night. Got a little bit of sleep after a long travel day. And we're right back in the USMNT saddle. This is like my paradise where it's Ryan Bailey's hell. And I think there's just something poetic about that. <laughs> so you can feel the red, white, and blue running through your veins. Can you also feel the jet lag running through your veins? How are you feeling after your international travel? A thousand percent. So I'll just go ahead and apologize in advance if I sort of start a, a thought and it doesn't go anywhere. I feel I feel mostly okay. I thought I would feel a bit better after a, a decent night of sleep and... I almost feel like I didn't really sleep at all. So we're, you know, we're running on a, a little bit of fumes here. But, you know, if there's anything that's going to get me jazzed, it is the USMNT. I'll say this, though. Listeners can't see. Joe is drinking an espresso. espresso. He's got a very, like, well-manicured hairstyle going on. He's got uh, an outfit clearly designed by the finest de- designers in Italy. And he's already been fired twice by Napoli. So in a lot of ways, Joe, it feels like the Italian influence is, is very, very on display today. The only thing that I, I wanted to pick up from Italy but wasn't able to due to customs issues was my pet duck. Um, so that one didn't come through, but the rest of those Italian things, right on. And I feel like that has made me more and more equipped to talk about calcio on, on this show. Actually, on that note, what did you what did you bring home? What was the like the souvenir or are you not a souvenir type of person? Yeah, I'm I'm like very boring. I, I was close really? to getting I was close to getting a Roma hat because we were in Rome and, and mm-hmm. I actually quite have, have I found myself quite taken with Roma's some of their new mm-hmm. logos and designs. I think they've done a really good job. And so I was tempted because I've become more of a hat person as my hair's got longer over the years. Uh, but it just it just didn't end up happening. I'm not a very sentimental guy when it comes to things, much more in terms of memories and experiences and so didn't end up with a souvenir other than souvenirs inside my heart taylor there we go souvenirs inside your heart hopefully the us M&T. are you a souvenir guy i know i know we got usmnt stuff to talk about but i need to uh know. yeah yeah i am i'm definitely overly sentimental in that like i i'm the one who if we had like the hoarder person come and help us clear out i'd be like no everything sparks joy that's a <laughs> a, a movie ticket stub that's a piece of trash from when we did the yeah no i'm overly sentimental in that way uh, and then I slowly have had to to pare down. But yes, I will always bring at least a little a little something home. 
I did, I think, my first trip to Italy come back with like 16 bottles of wine, which I don't think is legal. So I'm glad that you didn't at least break international customs law or anything like that. Well done, Joe. 16 bottles? How? Was that an extra yeah, suitcase? Was, like, I don't I understand s- how you pulled that off. I was 17 as well. So there you well go. They played, were not for sir. me. They well were not played. for me. They were for family members. I'm, I guess that was a bit of a smuggling operation I ended up establishing as a high schooler. <laughs> so there you go. A weird choice by me, but who knows? Uh, a not weird choice. But an interesting choice would be Germany's appointment of Julian Nagelsmann. There's my transition. Um, and that, that is a thing I want to kind of focus in on for a little bit with you, Joe, because uh, we have Germany as our, as our first sort of major opponent with Greg Berhalter reappointed. It does feel like kind of the start of a new-ish era of sorts. We'll talk a little bit about that when we get to the U.S. team. But for Germany... Nagelsmann arrives as Flick's replacement. Uh, Hansi Flick was there, not having much success. He was the first ever German coach fired from the position after a 4-1 to loss to Japan. We talked a bit a bit about that at the time. Rudy Voller takes over as interim manager for their 2-1 to win over France. But now Nagelsmann is there, given a contract through next year's European Championships, which Germany is hosting. Feels to me, Joe, this is very much a please make us not be embarrassed at the Euros and then we'll see what happens sort of appointment. 1,000%. It's a great appointment from Germany. Like if the U.S. could have come out of their coaching search with Julian Nagelsmann, I think we would all have thrown some sort of a parade. Like he is, even though the end of the Bayern tenure didn't go very well, he is one of the premier coaches in this game. And it is so uncommon for one of those coaches to cross the club border and start to take over an international side. So I I think this is a massive get from Germany. It makes sense really for both sides. From the German perspective, Taylor, you just said it. They've got the Euros on home soil. That is how long they have Julian Nagelsmann under contract for. He'll coach them through the end of the Euros. That makes a lot of sense. I think it's basically the best possible option for Germany. And for Nagelsmann, he's somebody still with I'm sure, huge ambitions, just 36 years old at this point, has had a crazy club trajectory prior to things not ending particularly well with Bayern, going from Hoffenheim to Leipzig to Bayern, and now towards the German national team, which is a step down. Let's not kid ourselves from Bayern Munich, but it's still a big job in the grand scheme of things on the soccer side for him to have a chance to sort of reestablish himself to to maybe, in Nagelsmann's mind, conquer something new before flipping back to the club side of things after the the season's over in Europe. Like, the timing just makes sense. It's like eight, nine months from now that Nagelsmann will then be in contention to hop back into the club waters if that's something he decides to do. Yeah, I think this makes sense for everybody. And we obviously haven't seen him managing Germany at present. Uh, but, Joe, from your research, from your memory, from watching Nagelsmann teams of the past, yeah. what are sort of the hallmarks of his game or what are the things that you think of as Nagelsmann tactics? Yeah, I think his teams want to certainly control the ball and they want to be proactive. It's an interesting mixture of positional rotations and some of those classic positional play, careful spacing, well-timed off-ball movement stuff, and also some maybe newer or, I guess, soccer cyclical. So none of these tactical things are especially new. But at, at times, they'll stack numbers really, really centrally, and they'll try to overload those areas, which felt like a very Red Bull thing. But the irony here, and again, this is why he kind of dips from multiple different pools, is that when he takes over RB Leipzig, he takes them from being a pressy, direct Red Bull team to being a possession team. So he, he kind of dips into all these different pools. My guess for what we're going to see from the Nagelsmann era is some fluidity. I bet we'll see some back fours. I bet we'll see some back threes. It seems like from what I've read and from looking at the squad, a back three is the most likely shape for them in this window. 
But think back to Byron. We saw him him shift between those shapes as Alfonso Davies would go high on the left side. Somebody would stay deeper on the right side. Like you can go through and look at all of the different things he's done and you see a ton of flexibility. The thing I keep coming back to is with all of the talent at his disposal. Now, it's not a perfect German squad that's in for this window. And, and frankly, their player pool isn't perfect. There's a couple mm-hmm. of spots where they're weaker than they'd like to be. But they are still stacked on talent, especially in central midfield. Goalkeeper depth chart's very strong. The center back depth chart is very strong. There's tons of quality here. For as much as Julian Nagelsmann wants his team to control games, they will be able to control and really push the tempo on basically everybody in the world outside of maybe the the few top teams in Europe like this and, and South America as well. This team is scary good still. Um, I welcome you to dunk on me here, Joe, with this question. But I, I do, I think... Uh, perhaps erroneously think of Julian Nagelsmann as a, a system manager, or he wants his t- players to play a very specific style, a very specific approach. Uh, and you talked a little bit about that with with controlling the ball, being proactive, controlling possession. And that is where I am a little more, not negative, but I am very, I think the, the popular expression would be curious to see, which I think is kind of a catch-all phrase. But like, I don't think this will go poorly, but I don't necessarily know if it will be a slam dunk appointment because this can be a tricky thing to get your players playing in the style you want to make these little adjustments. It can take a long time. I would think of Burhalter similarly as a sort of system manager rather than an individual manager. Now, I'm not saying Burhalter and Nagelsmann are in any way the same caliber. That's an important distinction to make. But I guess my first question for you, Joe, is like, is that a fair summary of Nagelsmann overall? Or do you feel like he is more adaptable? As you talked about, he changes things a little bit when he takes over Leipzig. It's not just out and out pressing. It is a bit more possession. Do you feel like he is going to be able to adapt his approach to an international setup? I think he will. I think Julian Nagelsmann is, again, one of the most capable coaches in this game. He's someone who talks about how, you know, coaching is tactics, but it is also how you relate to your players. It's how you want to go and do all of the non-strategic stuff as well. It's going to be a challenge for him to go from having players on the, the training field five days a week in a game to going from going from that to basically having them for a week at a time every couple of months or, or you know, two out of three months at, the, uh, at a time. It's going to be difficult for him, I think, to make that transition just like it is, I think, for every coach that goes from the club game to the international game. But I have a lot of belief in Julian Nagelsmann's coaching acumen. I think he is very, very sharp. I think he's very smart. I think he understands and will understand how to pare back some of the details in his game model to make it more digestible in these shorter windows. The other part here, though, that's in Nagelsmann's favor, and another thing that's going to make this Germany team scary for the U.S. men's national team, is these players know Julian Nagelsmann, or a lot of them do. They've either played for him or played against them. I, against him. I, I bet you could go through most of this squad, and for 90% of it, that would be the case. They understand roughly how he wants to play. They understand roughly the things that he wants to do. And so it's not like they're starting from zero. It's not like they're starting from no instruction. Even Hansi Flick, right? Hansi Flick and Nagelsmann have different, you know, sub-principles. They don't go about things exactly the same way. But there are similarities in how Germany was playing before and how they'll be playing now under Nagelsmann. So I don't think it's got to be this zero to 100 thing for Germany. Maybe they're starting at 20 or 30 or 40 and Nagelsmann's going to try to get them to 80 by the Euros, and then, you know, they're still going to be darn good then. 
Yeah. And I think it's a really interesting time period for Germany because I think the Nagelsmann appointment is is a major appointment, lest we forget. Like he he was the manager that took over Bayern and I thought was going to be there for forever, still has aspirations to take over a big club, as you've already talked about, Joe. So this feels very much to me like a interim sort of gig, even if he is the permanent manager. Now, maybe the Euros go well and, and he takes it for another four years or another two years or whatever it may be. But it does also feel like it is Nagelsmann taking over the program, trying to sort of, I guess, resurrect his his reputation after what happened with Bayern Munich and some of the way they kind of publicly trashed him, I would say, or, or just let some of the personal details and personal issues leak out. So I feel like he is on a redemption arc. But then this German team, as you said, it, it's not... It's not a, the strongest German team we've ever seen, but it is still an incredibly strong team because it's the German national team and they have a ridiculous amount of talent. This does not feel like a DOS reboot sort of moment. It doesn't no. feel like they're resetting the whole program and trying to rediscover things. It feels like we have enough talent, enough ability to do something at the Euros, but we do not have the timeline to sort of recreate things or reform the way we want to play. We want to basically host this tournament, go as deep as we can, not embarrass ourselves, and then we'll see what happens. And so it's an interesting point at which he is not tasked with rebuild the program, reshape the German identity. It is basically get us playing the best possible soccer in the shortest amount of time to make us very good for the next tournament next summer. And I think he is capable of doing that. And then this squad is capable of springing surprises. So I think for the U.S., they're catching a very difficult opponent at a very tricky time. Yeah. And I think in that way, it's a really exciting opportunity for the United States as they prepare for bigger and better opposition in more formal competitions. 100%. And Taylor, that's exactly where I was going. In my notes, I have down in bold, along with England and the Netherlands at the World Cup, so this past winter, this German team is the best team that the U.S. has faced under Greg Berhalter. You can go through the list. They haven't played the U.S. a lot of really good teams. Like, yeah, they played Colombia in a January camp. Mexico and Canada are still both strong in a, in a general sense. They are teams that you expect to be at World Cups from now until the end of soccer as we know it. Like, they're, they're capable teams, but the U.S. has not played the elite of the elite. They tried to get Argentina in Brazil for October, and Conmebol sort of scuttled all of that. But like, we have not seen this U.S. team, certainly not in this cycle, but not ever under Greg Berhalter, play a lot of high-quality teams. And there are other issues for that. I'm not trying to blame Berhalter mm -hmm. for that. I feel like there are folks out there that will. I don't think that's, that's his issue at all. But like, this is a massive opportunity for the U.S. to show what they can do, that, to show that they can compete with the best of the best teams. Because if you want to make a deep run at the World Cup on your home soil in 2026, these are the kind of teams that you not only need to be competing against, but these are the kind of teams that you need to be beating. Yeah, it's a friendly. There's only so much you can take away from a friendly, and, and it won't have the same feeling as a World Cup game or a Copa America game or any sort of real tournament match. But I think we're going to learn a lot about the U.S. and about Greg Berhalter, about these players, and how they approach this game and how they actually execute against some of the best players that this world has to offer. A uh, couple final questions on Germany before we take a look at Ghana. You mentioned that it's a strong team, but there's a couple spots where they're weaker than they would probably like to be or have been previously. My assumption is that you're talking about out wide, particularly in the fullback wingback spots. When you look at this roster, uh, I counted seven defenders, uh, one, two, three, four, five of whom are primarily center backs. So yeah. yeah, maybe that's a back three, as you said. Maybe this is Nagelsmann going with the kind of 
more prevailing. I'm playing three of the four as center backs or four of the four as center backs in a back four. But I feel like we're equally likely to get a back three, especially with uh, David Raum and Robin Gosens as the other defenders. That feels like we could get some wing back play there. Uh, where Are there other areas of potential vulnerability that you spotted, Joe? I think the other area is still just the number nine spot. Mm-hmm. Germany have not transitioned super gracefully from legends in that position to where we are now. Now, to be clear, like there are still really, really dangerous forwards in this team. But I think the most dangerous forwards are at wide or in the half spaces. Leroy Sané is one that comes to mind for me the most. I think he is in incredible form right now for Bayern Munich. You could have Jamal Musiala in the half spaces or at the number 10 spot. The same goes for Kai Havertz. The same goes for Thomas Muller. But that nine spot is, is someplace where Germany aren't quite as dangerous as they are in other parts of the field. But yeah, Taylor, the nine and and the right side of defense are the two areas that I spotlighted. I'm guessing we're going to see Kimmich play as a, a right wing back against the U.S. Maybe Nagelsmann pulls out some wild cards, though. And this is the part that we don't know. Yeah. And part of this that I think is going to make prep difficult for Greg Berhalter and his coaching staff for this game. We have no idea what Yuli Nagelsmann is going to do. We, we have some guesses based off of what he's done before. But this is ground zero for him with the German national team and his personnel selections. So I don't envy the U.S. men's national team staff for having to comb through a bunch of this and and try to guess Mm -hmm. at some of the choices that Nagelsmann's going to make. One final point for me, a player to spotlight uh, would be 20-year-old Bayern Munich midfielder attacker Jamal Musiala. He is the player I think could have the biggest impact in a negative way for the United States. (laughs) Because if we see him operating as a more central attacking midfielder of sorts uh, without Tyler Adams in this team. If we don't have the discipline to track him 1v1, he's very good on the ball. I was talking about this recently. I kind of forget how quick he can be on the ball, uh, but then also in his decision-making in transition, uh, both individually, again, carrying it forward, but then also playing it forward, finding pockets of space, finding really smart passes, and then getting on the end of uh, reverse passes to score goals. Musiala is a player that I think if he has a strong game, the United States are in some trouble. And so how they handle him and his creativity and his movement when they don't have Tyler Adams, I think will be a very, very fascinating thing to keep an eye on. So that's that's one thing I've spotlighted. Joe, anything else for you when it comes to Germany? It's just how the U.S. is going to deal with the glut of talent that's in this team, Taylor. It's like a, a more macro version of exactly what you just said. Musiala, Havertz, Muller, Sane, Kimmich, Gare- like you can run through the them. list of players. Of yeah, I, yeah, I'm glad you are familiar <laughs> with their games. Like this, this squad is so, is so good. And the U.S. needs tests like this. Like they need to be tested. Missing Tyler Adams, missing Jedi Robinson. Like those are big names for this team, not just because they've been around for a while, but also think about the defensive work that they do. Like Jedi Robinson covers so much ground, goes end line to end line, is one of the fastest, if not the absolute fastest player in the Premier League. And Tyler Adams is just a ball winner in that midfield area. When you're missing those players, and the U.S. will miss those players and others between now and the end of the 2026 World Cup, how do they respond? How does this group actually deal with all of the talent that Germany is going to have on display while not sacrificing their entire identity? Because I don't think, and we'll get onto this a bit later, I don't think the U.S. is going to pack it in and play a low block in this game. They didn't do that at the World Cup against England. They didn't do that against the Netherlands. Yeah, they, they made some tweaks in those games. We saw a 4-4-2 defensive shape against England, which is not something that we'd really seen from the U.S. in quite some time. But in general, the U.S. is still going to use a lot of the same principles that they've used 
from Greg Berhalter's, from, from the start of his tenure and from a couple of different revamps along the way. So I, I'm fascinated by what this game is going to look like because I think it's going to be a really, really fun and potentially yeah. dangerous matchup for the U.S. I also think that it's kind of a free space for the United States in that if you lose to Germany, I don't think anyone is like furious about that one. I think right. a lot of people expect that to happen. But this is a U.S. team that has their coach back. Um, make of that what you will. Uh, but that means they're going to have more familiarity. There's going to be more, I think, nuance, or they're more capable of nuance given the familiarity with the system and how long they've played it. For Germany, I think there is, there's a new manager. There's new players called in. There's three debutants, I think. There's four players that were frozen out that are back in the team. But there's also a ton of pressure. There's outside obstacles. Um, Goretzka, who's in this, in this squad, was publicly frustrated that they were playing these games at all, that he didn't feel like it made any sense to go to the United States and play two games and then fly all the way back to then resume the Bundesliga. There's been criticism of this scheduling, of this opposition. So there's, it feels like there's more pressure there for Germany in a number of different ways. It's an opportunity, I think, for the United States to be the aggressor early. We don't always see that from them. And I think it would be fascinating if the United States came out and tried to take the game to Germany in the first 15 minutes or so. Obviously, you're going to back off at some point. But I think there is... If not chaos, then just uncertainty, indecision that can be exploited by the United States. So that is my other little wrinkle for that one, broadly speaking. We're going to talk more about what we would like to see from the United States. We're going to answer some listener questions. Uh, but next, we're going to preview Ghana after taking a very quick break. Hey, folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early. There are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation. There's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly. There's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there. There's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain. There are many things to deal with. And unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively. But for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. 
This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Welcome back to the Total Soccer Show. Uh, Joe, not to spotlight your, your, your youthful vigor right away, but what are your memories of Ghana? Do you have any sort of connection to Ghana? Do you feel strongly one way or the other, or is it just a good team that you're excited to watch the U.S. play? There's a little bit that gets mm-hmm. left over from 2014. Uh, like that is sort of that, that's one of the formative tournaments for mm-hmm. me in my soccer watching experience. But I think it is so much my connection to Ghana from a USMNT perspective is probably way lighter than it is for most people listening to this, and certainly than yours. A little bit, little bit, man. 2010, 2014. The John Brooks winner in 2014 was was a yeah. wonderful moment. The loss in 2010, less so. But always really challenging, always really tricky, and always having Asamoah Gyan. We had some questions about him. He retired this past summer, uh, so we won't have Asamoah Gyan playing for Ghana. But we do have a very strong team, and, and I don't know if they are as strong as teams we've seen in the past, but there is so much individual talent within this team that I think they will be a difficult opponent because I, watching them, thought... This is a team that the United States, this is a test for them to be the dominant team, to really be the one that controls the tempo, controls the game, doesn't get into like individual battles that do not favor them, uh, and, and really sort of suffocates Ghana in, in trying to build out. And then you look at some of the talent there, and it makes it a little bit of a trickier obstacle in my mind. But I still think this is the game where I would like to see the United States not be like not overwhelmed, but not be intimidated, not sort of back down, but see this as we should be the better team. We should be the ball dominant team. Let's take this game to them. And that's where I would like to start this one. Does that vibe with what you saw watching Ghana, Joe? Absolutely, Taylor. I think this is of these two games in October. This is the one that the U.S. should not dominate in terms of creating the overwhelming number of chances, although I do think they should create more chances than Ghana. But they should dominate the the proceedings of the game. Like, they should control how it's being played. It should be played on their terms, at their tempo. Since the World Cup, Ghana has has mostly been playing AFCON qualifiers. They've had some pretty mixed results. Like, a 1-1 draw with Angola. A 0-0 draw with Madagascar. They're not dominating teams that you would think they should go out there and beat. They have changed managers since the World Cup. It's Chris Hutton, who's their coach now. 65-year-old Irish manager. He was the technical advisor to Ghana's coaching staff at the 2022 World Cup. He started that role in February of last year and then transitioned into the head coaching role in February of this year. So they haven't had a ton of time to play under Hutton, but they don't look very well organized to me. And this was the same thing I saw with Ghana leading into the World Cup even though they have some good moments at that tournament, don't make a deep run. But they're in a, a bit of a chaos group that was really, really fun, thinking back to it now in, in, in Brooklyn, where we were. Like, there's talent here, but they are not well-organized to me whatsoever. They're in, mostly from what I saw, a back four. I saw 4-2-3-1 for the most mm-hmm. part. I think there's some 4-3-3 in there as well. But they they played mostly out of that shape in the games that I watched. And their press is there. Like, they, they'll try to press at times, although I don't know how aggressive they'll be against the U.S., They'll use some man marking through midfield to try and block up those options. That's not uncommon nowadays, but they're not disciplined in how they press. They're not always pressing as a unit. You can tell that the the general idea is there, but they're not really all on the same page. And then in possession, 
I don't think they look very well organized either. Their possession play seems much more improvised than pre-planned. Taylor, I don't know if you you noticed any of this. Yep. But the quality is there to shine through some of these things. And Aki Williams, Mohamed Kudush, who I think is is the star of this team, he can pop up in a bunch of different spots and played mostly as the 10 when I watched him. Thomas Partey deeper in midfield. I don't know how many of these players we're going to see and in what roles exactly we're going to see them. But like there, there's talent here. I don't think, though, that they're a very good team overall in terms of how they're coached and how they prepare tactically yep. for games. Yep. You mentioned the 4-2-3-1 slash like kind of a 4-3-3. I would extend that to even at times a 4-1-4-1. All of that is is roughly similar. Uh, but I think it was interesting to me because of what that spotlighted was that you tend to have uh, Alicia Uwusu of Auxerre in the game that I watch at least uh, staying deeper. He seemed to be the more holding defense-minded of the midfielders. Uh, and then you had Abdul Samed of Len. Uh, he would be the kind of like number eight, the shuttling, but oftentimes getting heavily involved in the attack sort of midfielder. And then Mohamed Kudush as the kind of creative playmaker who stayed further up. Uh, so that would be the kind of midfield three that that I spot spotted. Now, maybe that is Thomas Partey replacing either Abdul Samed or Awusu. Uh, that would be like the most... I think talented player that you could throw in to further solidify that team. I don't know which one of those he would be more likely or better to replace, but I think that is a wrinkle we could see. But I saw in the in the way they attack what you what you spotlighted there. Even if you do get good moments of sort of sustained possession where they're moving the ball from left to right, right to left, uh, and they are having little passing combinations, little triangles, or whatever it may be, ultimately. Most of the attacks I saw were then one individual beats somebody 1v1 or tries to beat somebody 1v1 and then gets a shot off or rides their physicality, depending on, on if it's Inyaki Williams or if it's Antoine Semenyo of Bournemouth. And Semenyo is the one that I wanted to spotlight for a moment because he is very big, very physical, but also, I think, more technical than you might expect when you see his size. I think to see him, you, you think, okay, that's a dude they're going to put in the box. He's going to try to win crosses. He's going to try to bully people and maybe hold up and link play and lay off for other players to get shots. But he will turn people, and he can beat people. And he's got creativity. He's got skill. He's got good shooting ability. Uh, he seemed to be the most consistently threatening of all the attackers. He was a late substitute in the game against Central African Republic. So... Maybe that's him coming on against tired legs that are sort of desperately trying to hang on. But he he felt like he could be a difference maker. I don't know if it's him starting, if it's Williams starting, if they're uh, some combination of the two. Uh, but to your point, Joe, it did feel more individual. So I think if the United States backs themselves to win the physical challenges when they're there, but then defends the unit, doesn't let gaps open up, doesn't get like overly caught in transition i think that they can frustrate and i think that they can do the job well enough to then allow them to attack this ghanaian team and i think the united states can have some joy there uh they played a very high line ghana against central central african republic but not a very unified high line if a runner if i noticed this if if a a central african republic runner would would make that run one of the defenders would track with them whether or not the ball had been played and so twice they break the offside line because Ghana basically broke it themselves they have an initial runner who stretches that back line maybe 20 yards and then another runner runs in behind and now he's onside so i think there is some opportunity there for the United States to combine quickly, play through the middle, or look over the top on occasion if Balogun feels like he's in a situation where he can benefit. I think there are opportunities there. And this is one, as I said, where if the United States 
controls possession, doesn't get overly caught up in the physicality, uh, and creates their opportunities and just stays patient. I think this could be a game where the U.S. looks like the dominant team. We have also seen them play teams like Ghana and Ghana itself in the past where they don't fully take control of the game and they do sort of back away from challenges or get too involved in that sort of game and that will not benefit them so if in the second half we see Ghana on the ball the U.S. sort of sitting off not really looking proactive not really looking confident I think that will be a sign that they have not fully taken control of the game or at least attempted to take control of the game the way I would have liked so I could see this being a U.S. win I could see this being a Ghana win obviously I could see it being a draw but I think all that to say, it's a very interesting game and another opponent that I'm really happy the U.S. scheduled. This feels like very good scheduling in that we get an, an opponent who is probably the favorite, even though that they are, are in a bad run of form. So the U.S. getting anything there will be, I think, perceived as progress and success. And then against Ghana, I think there's an opportunity to beat a historic foe uh, who also have plenty of quality themselves, but quality that a good game management plan can sort of nullify and uh and overcome so I, I that's where i am with the ghana game excited nervous all those many things joe i've talked for a while so i'll turn it over to you yeah i i agree with so much of that taylor i am more excited about this game now than i was before i started digging back into ghana it had been a while since i checked in on them since really the the world cup last winter so it was fun to get back in and be reminded of some of the quality that they have I think there are a lot of different ways that this game could go. I think most of those ways look like the U.S. being the better team. Whether the ball finds the back of the net or not is a bit of a different story. Mm -hmm. But the U.S., there's no doubt about it, are are the better team. Like, they have four Mohamed Kudush-level players in the mm -hmm. team. They have an Anaki Williams, a be better than Anaki Williams-level striker in Falor and Balogun. Like, they, they have Ooh, the better that's a bold talent. Claim. That's a bold claim. Not, not for to someone who took it in the, in the football manager USMNT draft, Taylor, whatever, whatever that was that we did. <laughs> not at all. Like, the U.S. has the better team on talent. They are by far the better coach team from what I've watched. Like, they, they should go out there and be favored to win this game, and they should play well. So let's take a look at this U.S. team for a moment, starting with roster updates. Uh, Malik Tillman, Malik Tillman is out. Uh, Alex Zendejas comes in. Joe, could this be the start of the Zendejas redemption arc? I think I was okay with... Every six months, we check in and see where he is. <laughs> where he is at club level is uh, getting more minutes, playing decently enough. So in he will come, but he did not look very good in the Gold Cup or in his other appearances for the U.S. So maybe we see him in cameo appearances. Maybe we don't see him at all, but Zendejas is there. And this could be it, Joe. Maybe maybe he ends up scoring five goals and he's our new starter out wide. Probably never not. say never, Taylor. Never say never, but I'll say it's unlikely. Yeah. Um, I, I'm bummed I'll about never. this. I'll say never. Malik Tillman, it feels like... <laughs> Had been coming into his own at PSV, starting to get some minutes there, and felt like this was going to be a good opportunity for him after starting the U.S.'s last game to play something of a role in these two games against better teams than we got for the U.S. back in September. Unfortunately, due to injury, that's not going to happen. I honestly don't have a big problem with Zendejas coming in. The U.S. now has more moving pieces and parts to manage with a U23 camp going on alongside. Not along, that's not the right word, but at the same time, as this national team camp for the senior team. Now they have players kind of going into different pots and moving in different directions, going to different cities. The, the logistics are more complicated. So I don't mind Zendejas being the ad over someone like Taylor Booth, who's with the U23s in Phoenix right now. I, I think it makes sense. Booth also, Booth also, easy for me to say, has not been playing a lot. I think he's just now getting back from an injury. So yeah, I don't expect Zendejas to seize a, a huge role here and I'm bummed for Tillman, but I don't, I don't have any real issue with this. 
So a couple questions for you regarding what you want from the United States. We have some listener questions coming up. We're also going to talk about that Olympic roster. Joe, I may steal one of our, our, our questions yeah. here at this point. Uh, from Stu, should Burhalter set up the team to get a new set rhythm going, or should he set up specifically against Nagelsmann and the Germany team? I'm going to take that and extend it to basically – how would you like to see them approach these two opponents, broadly speaking? Do you want the same approach, the same players, roughly? Are you okay with a full changeover from one game to the next? I think I would rather see a very similar starting 11 over the course of the two games with maybe a few changes here and there based on fitness, availability, limiting minutes, and the like. But I think mostly I want to see the U.S. continue to play in the style that we've to which we've become accustomed with Roughly similar personnel. Yeah. If I'm Greg Berhalter, I'm setting up this team with pretty much my best 11 out there. And and there are tactically some things that you want to do differently from Germany to Ghana. Like ahead of Ghana, you're probably going to emphasize some of your possession play more. You're probably going to emphasize some of those patterns more. And against Germany, you're probably going to work on your mid-block defending a little bit more and where you want your wingers positioned and, and the pressing cues and which ones you want to use and which ones you don't want to use. And you might ease off the gas more against Germany than you will against Ghana. But I don't think Greg Berhalter is going to want these games to look wildly different. Overall, we know what he wants to do. He wants the U.S. to try to, to push the tempo, to control games in moments, and not not ever be the team that's fully on the back foot. Like, we, we, we don't see this U.S. team defend in low blocks for long stretches. That just does not happen. So I don't think it's worth doing that now against Germany when you have the talent to go out there and some of the athleticism to try and, and cause them some problems. So there's a there's a balance here. In terms of the lineups, Taylor, I, I am 100% agreed with you. In my mind, this camp has, has really one primary purpose and one secondary purpose. The primary purpose for a lot of these camps, actually not just this one between now and 2026, is to get the core group of players playing together and playing better than we saw at the 2022 World Cup. Now, I don't think it was a bad showing for the US at the World Cup. I really don't. But really, between now and 2026, how many different starters do we think the U.S. is going to have in the first game of the 2026 World Cup compared to 2022? I don't think there are going to be a lot of different players in that 11. I think we're going to see, I mean, Taylor, you and I could probably name seven starters, and we could check this back in Mm -hmm. 2026, and we probably would be right. Turner, Chris Richards, Serginho Des, I mean, pick any two midfielders. Christian Ferreira, Ferreira Tim Weah, obviously. Yeah, Ferreira, <laughs> Will Trapp. Like, you can run through the list, right? Like, all these guys, we can name them now. It's unlikely that they end up getting booted. It's not impossible, but it's unlikely. And certainly, mm. as things stand right now, there's not enough pressure to take minutes away from a Pulisic Weah Balogun in front yep. three or from a uh, Chris Richards, Serginho Dest, Matt Turner, maybe Miles Robb. Like, like, these pairings are still worth putting out there because there's not enough pressure to really boot them out of this team. So that's the primary purpose. Like let these players play and let them get better and let them get better together. Let them develop in the final third, let them work on those patterns. I think that is by far the most productive thing the U S can do between now and 2026. And the second thing, the secondary purpose is to get a few of the, the players that maybe are vying to, to come in and take a spot or are vying for a death position. It's to get them minutes. It's to test out Joe Scally in a game maybe like this against Germany. I do have him in my starting lineup for this game. It's to get Miles Robinson minutes in a game that has high stakes. It's to get uh, maybe Kevin Paredes 10 minutes off the bench and see what he brings. It's to get those players that aren't locked in an opportunity and some exposure in these games. So I, I think 
if I'm Greg Berhalter, I am rolling out the guys in both of these games for as, as much as it makes sense fitness-wise with a congested fixture list, and I'm trying to get them to play as well as they can and supplement them then with some of the secondary players that their roles maybe are not quite so clear. Retweet. Uh, and then <laughs> and then I will unretweet to then quote tweet to add, uh, yeah, I agree with everything you said. Uh, and I think that trying to game plan specifically for Nagelsmann in Germany when we don't know what they will look like, what that shape is going to be, what their style is going to be, what their approach will be, who the players will be even uh, on the starting 11, that is. I, I think you're absolutely right that then like sitting in a shell and, and seeing what they do, you might still be at a loss because maybe they're going to do something entirely different. And now you sitting in a shell doesn't really prepare you at all for that. Whereas I think what makes sense to me is play your game, establish the rhythm that you talked about, but I think be able to adjust and be aware that you're going to need to adjust probably pretty quickly because as soon as there is a wrinkle of, Oh, Musiala is picking up the ball here. We didn't see that. Oh, Sané is doing this is shifting in and someone else is going out wide. You have to be able to adapt to that. And that's what I want to see the U S do play their game, but adapt as needed uh, and hopefully bend, but don't break. Uh, so Joe, you've teased your starting 11 a little bit. Let's tease it by taking one more break and we'll be back to give our starting 11s for the Germany game, uh, answer a few questions and do some Olympic roster chat as well. Back soon. This episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs, who would like to remind you when you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. You don't want to end up with Ryan, Graham, and Joe. Just kidding. Just kidding. Very much just kidding, because I was very fortunate to have the three of them all join the show, and I had existing relationships with all three of them that allowed me to know that they could handle the the the, uh, the amount of work that would be required, that they could be diligent in their tasks and be very effective on mic, and all three of them are. But again, that's because you have the existing relationship. If you don't feel like you have that with potential hires, then LinkedIn is going to make it very, very easy, and they're going to make it feel like you're connected to that person. They have a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire because it gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. But when you are setting the requirements and making it very specific as to what you're looking for, you can very quickly narrow it down to find the right candidate for that position. Hiring is easy when you have that many candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. 2.5 million small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring, and you can too. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash TSS. That's linkedin.com slash TSS to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Thank you very much to LinkedIn for sponsoring today's episode. All right. It is time, Joe. We're picking our starting 11s almost with the added little thing for me of just that this is the most excited I've been to talk about the U.S. since the since they were knocked out of the, the World Cup. I feel like we've gotten a lot of sort of treading water. Berhalter not there even when Berhalter's back. It's not the strongest of opposition. They don't really feel like they're really preparing us for much. Those Uzbekistan and Oman friendlies. This does. This feels like it is sort of the start of the next cycle of figuring things out, of improving the team. And so I'm more excited than I've been in almost a year uh, to watch the U.S. men's team play. Uh, and I'm excited for a lot of the familiar faces that will come with that, starting with Matt Turner and goal. Joe, I'm going to go ahead and assume that you've got the same. Joe yep. is nodding. Yep. So let's yep. move to what I'm going to assume is a back four for you, Joe. We've talked about potentially experimenting with a back three, but I think we're both cool with sticking with the back four shape for now. You had Scally in there. 
Is that at right back or left back? I have Scally at left back. All I don't right. I don't feel super strongly about if you go Dest on the right and that that's where I have Sergio Dest or you put him on the left and put Scally on the right. I, I lean towards doing things that try to help Sergio Dest be comfortable, given that he is not the strongest of defenders and he's going to have to do some defending without Tyler Adams in his corner in this particular game against Germany. So I'm going Dest on the right, the spot that he knows, even though he's played left back for PSV literally this year. But I'm going Scally on the left. And, and Scally for me is the choice here. Number one, because I think he's the best fullback outside of Sergino Dest in this squad. But number two, and this is an added bonus, he's played against a bunch of these guys before. Like he's he's been in the Bundesliga, he's been a regular starter for Gladbach. Having Joe Scally bet in against Leroy Sané, it's not a matchup that I like, to, to be very, oh, no? very clear. You're not but good let's about not that forget, one. Joe Scally handled himself quite well against Bayern Munich, would have been last season, almost at the very start of last season, against Leroy Sané. So there is at least some confidence that Joe Scally should have, while also recognizing his own mortality and limitations in this game. But I've got Scally on the left, Dest on the right, and then I'm going with Chris Richards as the center back one from now until basically ever. And then I've got Miles Robinson as the other center back in this one. I, I think center back, along with who plays left back with Jedi Robinson out, is one of the biggest questions. And then you got the midfield, which we can get to in a moment. But Taylor, I, I'm curious where you stand on this with your with your back line. I am scared personally of playing Tim Ream against Germany. I know he's playing in the Premier League against better teams than Germany, but without Tyler Adams or Jedi Robinson, I mentioned the same thing for, for Des basically. But Robinson covers so much ground and makes Tim Ream's life easier. And Tyler Adams does the same. I think there's a big reason those two players played alongside Tim Ream at the World Cup. I think they work well together. You remove Adams and you remove Jedi Robinson. All of a sudden, Tim Ream is on much more of an island than anybody would probably like him to be. I then opt for Miles Robinson because he's someone that you can trust to do more of the defensive dirty work in a game against Germany where you're going to have some dirty work to do. That's very interesting because I saw it the opposite way, but I'm okay. honestly not sure which is correct because I saw it more as if you don't have Adams there and you don't have Jedi there, do you want a leader who can sort of organize and communicate really well and can take over some of that communication responsibility. Whereas if you're throwing in a younger player, less experienced player, are they less likely to do that? Are they more focused on their individual performance, especially somebody like Chris Richards or Miles Robinson, who are trying to prove that they belong in the starting 11, prove that that spot is theirs. Are they more focused on the individual game plan? Whereas would Tim Ream be more focused on communicating uh, and conducting and organizing but you are not wrong that there is a mobility issue then and that you are asking him to do a lot of work. Um, I didn't have Ream in my starting 11. I had basically the same uh, defense as you. I was a little bit torn on that left back spot. And I think that will be one thing to keep an eye on because you've got uh, Scally who can play there. You've got Dest who can play there. And I wouldn't be surprised if we saw Dest on the left and Scally on the right, potentially. Uh, Dewan Jones is on the roster. He can He could potentially do that job. And Kevin Predis is there, but as a left attacker, I'm guessing, he's listed as a forward. So I think maybe that's telling us about how he might be used. So all that leaves me with, yeah, I, I'm fine with it being Dest at left. I'm fine with it being Scally at left. And I'm I'm good with Richards and Robinson because, again, if it boils down to we want to see a sort of core team moving forward that you then experiment with if somebody catches form or if you get injuries, so be it. But you have a sort of core team that you know you're going to start if and when, 
I think that that is Richardson Robinson for the time being. Uh, we didn't talk about CCV. He's a potential as well. Christopher yep. Lund is in there too. But yeah, it, it feels to me like that back four works just fine. Uh, Joe, moving to the midfield then, uh, where is your experiment experimentation going to be? I don't think we're going to see Johnny Cardoso as the number six. That feels like maybe a step too far for him right away. My assumption is that we will once again get Eunice Musa doing a version of the Tyler Adams role. That's my hope. I am pretty firmly now in the camp that when Tyler Adams is not, is not available, Eunice Musa is the best option to play as a number six. I don't know if he's better as a six or as an eight. I'm, I'm not really sure yet. We still are getting used to Eunice Musa playing in midfield at all at club level. So um, thanks to Milan for that, for, for remedying Valencia's mistake from the last couple of seasons. But... I would go Musa at the six, and, and the rest of this kind of depends on Giorena's fitness for me. Mm-hmm. He played 27 minutes for Borussia Dortmund in the last game before coming into camp. I don't think he's fit to play 90. I, I think that would be a huge mistake given how injury-prone he's been. Can he go 45? If he can, and you're not super worried about it, I would start him in this game because I think he is a part of the U.S.'s best 11 in most situations, and when Tyler Adams isn't here, it just clears the spot. Like, you have then... When Tyler Adams is available, four players for what likely amounts to three spots with Musa, McKenney, Adams, and Reyna. When one of those guys isn't there, I think it is so, it's, it's such a clean transition to slot the fourth one right on in, and you don't have to have a debate about it. So I would lean towards getting your best 11 on the field for this game, and I think that does include Gio Reyna. If he's not fit and not ready, and that's totally possible here, I do not know if Gio Reyna is ready to start or if that would make sense for him or if it would put him at risk. If he's not in the 11, I would go Luca De La Torre, and I'd probably still play Musa at the 6, and have De La Torre and McKenney higher up the field as the number 8s. Yep, uh, I had Luca De La Torre starting, uh, for all the reasons you mentioned, but specifically because of the lack of minutes for Reyna, he makes yeah. his first appearance of the season last weekend. I don't know if you can even for sure know if he can do the 45. Sure. Uh, so it feels more likely to me that you he gets... 20 minutes maybe thereabouts in this game maybe 30 minutes in this game and then if he looks sharp if he looks fine then maybe he starts against Ghana but I do think that he would be if everybody were fully fit except for Tyler Adams uh then I think it is Giorena starting for me I do also wonder how much the fact that he's back factors into this that is it going to be an immediate talking point if he doesn't start? Probably. Uh, whether or not that's fair is a separate conversation. But I do wonder if that factors into any of the decision making. Is Burhalter trying to get him back into the team to to show, fully show, nope, it's all done. We've moved on. Everything's good. Uh, I don't know if a cameo substitute appearance really does that. I think playing and starting against Ghana probably does. But that's not the first game that we're talking about. So if Reina starts... It will make sense to me for somewhat soccer reasons, but also non-soccer reasons. If Luca De La Torre starts, then I think we have our answer as to how much uh, they are managing Reina's minutes, and I wouldn't read much more into it than that. I do not love that midfield against against Germany, uh, but I don't think, say, Brendan Aronson, who's on this roster but is listed as a forward. Joe, I, I sort of hear where you are on him, and I think that with the idea that he is a very good attacking in transition, direct play, counterattack, threat, dribbly, uh, making a tired opponent feel uncomfortable. If you're trying to control the game and have some possession and play your style, I don't think Brendan Aronson is going to do that as well. So if it's not Reyna, then yeah, it's De La Torre for me. Yeah, Aronson is an interesting shout, though. And I, I think there is a potential that he starts in this game. I don't know that it's the most likely option, but 
you know, we saw the U.S. go to him in the Nations League final against Canada and played him in midfield, and he did a ton of work helping Joe Scally on that right side, doubling up Alfonso Davies. And, and Germany don't have Alfonso Davies, obviously, in this team, but they have a lot of attacking firepower, and it's possible that Baralter kind of revisits that and goes to the guy with the next highest engine in this team after Tyler Adams and just says, hey, like, you're going to be a workhorse in midfield. Yeah, we know you're going to lose some 50-50s because you're a stick. But, like, you're going to go out there and try to apply as much pressure on the ball as possible. I don't think that would be my first choice, given that I, I put Reina in and then De La Torre after him if that doesn't work out. And I think it is more likely than not that we see Giorena come off the bench. But if he's fit, I think I think you got to start him in this game. But Aronson is somebody that I would not be shocked at all to see in this starting lineup. Uh, and I'm guessing you don't have Leonard Maloney starting in this game? I don't. He, I don't. He I still plays in Germany, Joe. Got a lot of he experience. Does. Gets out of position. By my by, my Joe Scally logic, um, there is <laughs> there is some value in Maloney. I still haven't watched a ton of his game, but I am I'm not Correct. super <laughs> sure that we're going to see a ton of him in this window or going yeah. forward. Um, but time will tell. Time will tell indeed. Uh, front three: Pulisic, Balogun, Wea. Uh, yep. We'll get some substitutions. We'll get some. Uh, different looks, I'm sure, but that is the front three, and that is the front three. I'm not sure how much else we need to say about that, aside from it good, and I'm excited. Yep, retweet, all good. So that leaves us basically the two main like question marks, curious to see sort of positions would be who is the other midfielder in that midfield three, assuming it's Musa and McKinney, and then who is the left back. Uh, if my the only other sort of like slight question mark, I think, Joe. If it is Tim Ream starting as one of your two center backs, who is the other center back you would like to see start between Richards and Robinson or CCV? Yeah, I don't know. I, I want to first apologize to Graham Ruffin because I completely slipped the CCV inclusion in this squad when I was making my lineup. I, I'm honestly not mad at the idea of CCV starting in this game alongside Chris Richards, who is my actual answer to your question. F- for me, when you're looking at the middle of the U.S.'s back line, Chris Richards' name is an in ink, and then you've got... Uh, a few enter enter enters on the keyboard there and then you've got the rest of the list I think Tim Ream makes sense for some games but not for every game as we've discussed Miles Robinson I think makes sense for some games but not for every game CCV maybe is is the guy who could still kind of find a, a, a regular role opposite of Chris Richards but I think Richards is the guy with his mixture of on-ball ability some range defensively good on set pieces we saw that over the summer he's the guy for me in, in every game that the U.S. has between now and the end of 2026. Joe, do you want to know what Roy Hodgson calls Chris Richards? Uh, desperately. Who? <laughs> there you go. That's my joke for you. Uh, Richards does play 15 minutes for Palace in their no no draw with Nottingham Forest. But uh, when you're talking about him being written in ink, I don't know if that's the case for Crystal Palace. But definitely not. minutes are minutes, and I am okay with that. Uh, Joe, so it feels like we've got an idea of what we want to see uh, both in the 11 in terms of the approach. Uh, and I am slightly uncomfortable with how like quickly we can move through that, but it is a product of it being Berhalter's second cycle yep. of having Balogun of the team. It removes a lot of the debate about who should start at number nine. Isn't uh, it peaceful, way- Taylor? It's so peaceful <laughs> now. It didn't used to be peaceful. I'm glad we're getting Gio Reyna back in so that we can really get rid of all that peace. Um, and, and we can have more debate about Gio Reyna's fitness and whether it's a beef with Berhalter that's keeping him out of the lineup, just like we got in 2022. Yeah. I'm ready for that to happen because things Yay. have been way too calm around here. Way too calm. Way too calm. But Joe, to your point, I mean, with the ease of picking this lineup, like if we're looking towards 2026, if everyone's healthy, if everyone stays in roughly the same form, we would assume it's Pulisic, Balogun, Wea. We would assume McKinney and Moose are in there. Adams, as long as he's fit. Matt Turner probably starting in goal. You've got Chris Richards pen- penned in. Serginho Dest probably 
like he's maybe the only one that could slightly fall off a little bit, but that would take some doing. So it does feel like a team that has a, a strong identity already, already, and that does make me pretty happy, I have to say, it, albeit feeling uncomfortable that we haven't had to spend 45 minutes coming to a <laughs> starting 11. Uh, and this is a combination of what we think Berhalter will do somewhat with what we would like Berhalter to do as well. We always try to kind of find that balance. We also try to answer some questions as they come in, especially about the U.S. A few for us, Joe, starting for JRB Jr. Uh, or JRB Jr., but I'm taking some liberties there. Or, ju- or uh, Junior B Jr. All, oh, all, we, don't, we don't really know. We got to dig into the Discord to really find out. Junior Benjamin Jr. There we go. How much of Berhalter's staff has turned over from the World Cup? I'm curious how any changes would reflect growth or adjustments in approach. Yeah, I'm curious about that, too. I'm not sure we're actually going to learn because I I don't know that what the assistants are bringing on the training pitch is going to have a big impact on what we actually see on the field. But there has been turnover. So BJ Callahan, um, the Big East's very own all-time legend, Mm -hmm. is still on staff and he's going to do more press availability, Taylor. It's great. It's like... It's like they they really have continued to give him some shine because I think he's now turned into a cult U.S. men's national team figure. So B.J. Callahan is still here. Luchi Gonzalez and Anthony Hudson are not. So they are both coaching their own club teams at this point. Mikey Varis has been added. So as far as I can tell, he is no longer the U-20 head coach on the men's side. He is now just an assistant to Greg Berhalter. And maybe you found an update to this or asked somebody who knows more than we do. Uh, Isaac Guerrero, formerly uh, worked at, at FC Barcelona, now at Venezia. Berhalter said last month that would have been that he should be joining the team as well. They were just working out some, some final details there. I have not seen anywhere that that has actually happened yet. And I'm not obviously in, in and around the team for this window. So I don't know if he'll be there or not. But he's somebody that Berhalter was certainly expecting to join his staff. And then there's a new goalkeeper coach as well, Fabian Ota who's splitting time between his club team, Borussia Mönchengladbach, and the U.S. men's national team. And that my understanding is that he'll join the U.S. full-time after the club season ends this year. I did not look up uh, that that fact about Guerrero, but I am now texting Paul Tenorio. So I'll let you know if he gets back to me uh, as we record. Uh, but Joe, thank you for covering that ground there. Uh, another question from... Wings of 5Y5582, uh, these are from the Discord, uh, should the U.S. experiment with a two-striker system in case there's a game situation that calls for it? I will jump in to say not to start. Uh, we oftentimes see the U.S. experiment a little bit more like after the 60th minute when it feels like in friendlies that doesn't matter quite as much. Uh, I don't know if Germany is the time to do that. Maybe Ghana. Maybe if you're chasing against Germany uh, or if you're controlling the game against Ghana but not scoring. Uh, but I'm not overly focused on that. I wouldn't mind if maybe there were a substitution that put another striker on the pitch uh, and if the U.S. was feeling particularly confident in the way they're moving the ball and the possession they're having so it becomes more of like a a four-two-four of sorts. But I'm not sure if this is the time for that. Joe, how say you? So I guess I want to flip it to you first, Taylor. I hear what you're saying there. I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around like what situations absolutely necessitate a two-striker system. And probably this is not a conversation for minute 55 as we're recording of this episode. Yeah. But like I do anything outside of like chasing a game late where it makes sense to put another body up, mm-hmm. likely a bigger body. Is Is there another moment where you're like, we have to have two strikers right now? I mean, I guess only if it feels like we're playing opposition that is going to be like bunkered and there would just be a ton more opportunity for like 
goal scorers to score goals. But then the argument is, well, why not just play the system to which we become accustomed where we have more familiarity and back the system to help create those opportunities? No, I, I think it only really does just come down to there is so much attacking talent on the team and coming through. And you do have one like with Ricardo Pepe playing well and, and scoring goals for the U S there's an argument of like, Oh, you've got Pepe and Balogun. Do you see what their chemistry is like? Do you play Timothy Wea central? Do you put Brendan Aronson as like a support striker and see what he can do there? But all of that feels like sort of throwing stuff against the wall experimentation. And, and I don't know if that's necessarily what we need in this one. That feels more of a, Okay, we're 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 trying to make something happen. Let's throw on another attacker and lose some of the shape. And I feel like that's probably where we would see two strikers outside of that. Not really a thing I'm I'm needing them to experiment with. Yeah, I'm right there with you, right? I, I think outside of some obvious tactical moment that Brawler sees on the horizon where it makes sense for them to go with two strikers, I would rather spend these minutes refining the current setup. It's what I said earlier. I would mm-hmm. rather go down the path that's already sort of established. And, and we can see real potential in. Like the World Cup, there is potential there for the U.S. dominating regional opponents this summer. Like there's real opportunity for this team to continue to grow and become better than they are right now. I, I, all, all my chips are sort of in that camp right now, especially because I don't think there's a two-striker group that is so delicious mm-hmm. that you like have to take a winger <laughs> yeah, off the field agree. or you have to take a midfielder yeah. off the field. I, I don't think... Pepe and Balogun's profiles wouldn't work together, but I don't think they're like crying out to start together. And I don't think Pepe is right now at the level. He's not really playing a lot for PSV. I know he's been good with the national team. So that is important. And I'm I'm glad that that's been the case for him. I weigh national team contributions in camp and in games heavier than I weigh club form, but still Mm -hmm. I don't see like a, a ton of obvious reasons to go to that two striker setup right now. Agreed. Uh, Joe, a big, massive update from Paul Tenorio, who responds, no idea. Uh, I get there Boom. on Friday, might be able to see it training. So I guess check back in Friday, listeners, for that update on Isaac Guerrero from Paul Tenorio. I'm sure it will be there Friday. Everyone is trembling with anticipation. I cannot <laughs> wait. Paul, please make it Thursday. Book your travel one day earlier. We're dying over here. <laughs> That's It's that critical. It's that critical that flights need to be changed for sure. Uh, final question, which uh, segues nicely into talking about the U23s for a moment from Harrison on the Discord. Will U23 players, Reina, Balagun, uh, some other as well who start for the USMT go to the Olympics should they uh my answer to that is probably not because we have a roster of players called in uh it feels like they are sort of doing that delineation between teams that we've seen them do before we're not going to get a ton of back and forth I also think with uh other obligations for the senior team next summer you're less likely to see players playing in two tournaments or leaving the senior team to go play in the Olympics. So that's my assumption at present is that you'll see more of a, a younger, less experienced team with the U23s with maybe a few sort of fringe eligible squad players thrown in there. And then obviously you get the three overage players for the Olympics. And my guess would be that those will be, again, sort of less critical senior players who maybe deserve an opportunity or are in form where they deserve a shout to see what they can do. Yeah, th- there could be a little bit of overlap, but I would expect that overlap, if there is any at all, mm-hmm. to come from the fringe guys with the senior team that are going to be on the fringes of this roster and on the fringes like in November and all those kinds of things, rather than a Reyna or a Balogun or a Musa. I-, I think we're very, very, very unlikely to see that. 
simply because of the schedule. The Copa America, you, you mentioned it, it's in June and July of 2024, and the Olympics is in July and August of 2024. So if you have a player playing in both or at both tournaments, that means they are are literally playing soccer year-round because that is your off-season, and you've now just completely lost it to international play. I, I do not think U.S. soccer is going to do that. Now, again, it's possible that... I don't know, let's pick Kevin Paredes. He's in camp with this, the senior team right now, not the U23s. It's possible that some for some reason he doesn't play at all at the Copa America but is called in and goes to fly over to Paris for the like that's not unfathomable but every sign coming from US soccer is that there's going to be that delineation Taylor that's the perfect word that you mm-hmm. used between the senior group and the U23s and and so i think if we're going to get like senior pool players that maybe would get into the Olympics. Maybe that's somebody like say Josh Sargent as an overage player who is playing, scoring, doing okay, but not really in around the the senior team at time of recording or in this squad or anything like it. So I think we could get a little bit of crossover there, but I don't see any of the huge names that are eligible going. And I don't see any of the huge names going as overage players either. There's always that temptation since as long as I can remember with U.S. Olympic teams of thinking, but maybe they're going to send their best player. And then it's almost always... Like a goalkeeper, a veteran defender, and a veteran attacker who right. maybe isn't that like top tier of attackers for the United States. So that's my guess as to what we'll get in terms of that crossover. In terms of that squad, Joe, uh, we have a team that's called in, 23 players uh, called in to training camp for preparations for the Paris Olympics in 2024. Uh, do we want to run through all the names or do we just want to talk about the ones that stood out for whatever reason? Yeah, let's let's run through all the names in painstaking okay. detail in their hometowns sure, sure. and their their. Sure, ca- sure, sure. No, let's let's just do Who the you highlights. Know? <laughs> Give me a name. I got I got hometowns for you, my friend. Good. Um, let's do Chris Brady. I think he's is it Naperville? Is that where he's from? I'm pretty sure. Somewhere it's it's a, Naperville, it's a Chicago Illinois. Suburb. Yeah, you there it is. Eddie. That's not even in my, that's off the dome, folks. So you don't have to believe me, but that's true. That um, is troubling. It is extremely <laughs> troubling. Before we get to the names, really, really quickly. Yeah, I'm not. Oh proud. no, um, Joe, you're there. You're yeah. already there. Yeah, jet lagged me. Still got that one. Um, oh god, that's, that is concerning. Um, so to lay the groundwork, real quick, the USMNT headed to their first Olympics next summer while Taylor gains its composure for the first time since 2008. I'm um, so I'm so disturbed that you knew i'm sure it was just like a thing that was in your brain from reading that squad but all the same joe i i have some concerns that you know the u23 hometowns yeah it's not it's not great uh, i think brady is probably one of the only ones i could get i looked sure. it up for something else <laughs> recently you say that yeah and, and maybe looking through the squad refreshed it. i don't know what it was but only only u23 players along with three overage players at the actual olympics so that means players born on or after january 1st of 2001 are eligible in that U23 category. That's how the ages are going to work for this competition. Given the timing, as we talked about, lots of young players, lots of fringe guys, not a ton of of players that you're like, this guy should be with the senior team right now. This group is coached by Marko Mitrovic, certainly with input with the rest of the staff in terms of his selections. And by staff, I mean Berhalter and and the rest of the sporting side on the men's side of U.S. soccer. He announced his roster on, on Sunday. There are some limitations for this particular camp. Games in Phoenix against Japan on Tuesday. I don't know why I read that one first. They play Mexico tomorrow. That's the first game. Then they play Japan on Tuesday as we're recording. Right now on Tuesday, October 10th. Those are at Phoenix Rising Stadium, so not, not the Cardinal Stadium. Small crowd, I'm expecting. Are you I going? have no idea. I, I'm, I'm going definitely to the first one tomorrow. And the other one is on the same day as the Ghana game. So mm. I guess you and I got to figure out what our plans are first before Fair. I figure the rest out. I'm, I'm hoping to get a chance to talk to... Mitrovic, the coach of this team, and, and to learn more about him and, and to get to do some other interviews. 
I haven't heard anything about what's going on for these games, including the broadcast schedule. So I don't know if people are even going to be able to watch. A lot of up in the air. But I think that kind of speaks to the point that this is not the first group. Like this is the second choice guys, young MLS players, young European players coming in, trying to prove themselves and, and maybe get a chance at the Olympics. There's value in the Olympics, but it's not... It's not going to be the Copa America. It's not going to be the World Cup. It is going to be a chance for some fringe guys to get reps at the international level. So looking through that lens, Taylor, some of the players that I'm excited about. I will start with Chris Brady, goalkeeper. I think he should be the starter. Uh, Gagas Lanina is the other one who's not in camp right now. He's still with Yupin over in Belgium. Did not end up coming into this one. But I think it's going to be one of those two starting for the U.S. in Paris. So Chris Brady is the one here. I think you should start at least one of these games. I think he's a really good young goalkeeper. I have high hopes for him in the future. I'll just run through like, I don't know, one other position group, and then I'm curious to see what names stuck out to you, Taylor. Mm -hmm. I think the fullback spots are actually pretty strong in this group. Brian Reynolds, someone who's gotten senior team camps before, is not the finished product and may never be, but is someone who is still talented very much for this level. Caleb Wiley and John Tolkien. I think that group, I think we're going to see two of those three Players start, it's likely to be Reynolds on the right side, and it's going to be probably one of Wiley and Tolkien, and those could be starters in, in Paris as well. So there are some players here that not only have high ceilings, but are, are probably not just going to be around for this October U23 camp, but are likely to be fixtures between now and Paris. Yep. Uh, moving to the midfield, I had those names as well. In the midfield, we've got some interesting ones because we've got veterans, of sorts. And then sure. we've got newbies. We've got Paxton Aronson of Eintracht Frankfurt. Uh, he will be in there, and I think he could be a key performer for this team. But then we've got, in terms of those sort of more veteran looks, uh, Jean-Luca Busio and Tanner Tessman, both of Venezia still. Tanner Tessman we saw more recently with the senior team and did not impress. So then the question is, with the U23s, when he's in a bit more of a comfortable situation as opposed to a desperately trying to prove himself situation, uh, does that work out better for him? Does he look a little bit sharper? Uh, but those three, I think, are pretty particularly interesting, as is Benjamin uh, Kramaski of Inter Miami, who we saw get his senior team debut uh, in that last round of friendlies. But now he's with the U23s, and I think he'd be another one who plays his way into some starting minutes or at least significant minutes. And then moving forward, that's the one where, Joe, I'm going to lean on your uh, superior knowledge of all things Major League Soccer because of the forwards, I think five of the seven are from uh, MLS. Uh, But Taylor Booth would be uh, from Utrecht. He would be one of the outliers there. Uh, One that I was sneakily desperate to draft in my USMNT 11 that I believe, Joe, you stole. Did you get him in there? I I honestly don't remember, but I, I like Taylor Booth, too. I think he's a really good young player. Struggled with injuries. Yep. I think when he is back and, and fully fit, hopefully that happens for him soon, he is somebody that that might not end up with this U23 group because he's still on that senior team radar, but definitely somebody worth watching. I'm curious to see how much he'll play in these games, again, because of some of those fitness issues. Uh, any of the other forwards that stand out to you? Any of the other attackers or any of the midfielders I didn't mention? Jack McGlynn, Aiden Morris, uh, Obed Vargas. Yeah, Jack McGlynn I am excited about. From what I've read... Ireland are coming after him pretty hard, um, so we'll, we'll see. We'll see what happens there. But I, I really like his game. Sweet left foot, maybe the best on this side of the Atlantic. I'm not trying to be hyperbolic. He is incredible on the ball at that left foot from deeper areas, especially as a number six or a deeper number eight. I like McGlynn a lot. I hope we see him play over these games and, and certainly heading into next summer. Higher up the field, Taylor Booth was on my list. Bernard Camungo was on my list. I don't know exactly what his level is still. He has an incredible story, and I want to shout out uh, all the folks who have covered it. John Arnold, I think, wrote about it for The Striker a while back. Taylor Twelman on his new podcast just did a full-length 
feature about Kamungo uh, from Tanzania, was a, a refugee there, ends up coming to the United States, comes to Texas, plays high school soccer there and is really, really good. His brother convinces him to try out for North Texas SC, I believe, and pays the $90 tryout fee for Bernard. And he becomes a real part of that team, was good in MLS Next Pro last year, and is now a, a part of FC Dallas's first team. Awesome story. And so, so cool to see him in this camp. I am so much in love with that selection. And I think he could have something in terms of being a real part of this team as they march towards next summer. So he's someone I'm watching at the striker spot. And this, I bring this up because I think it's relevant, not just for these two games that probably nobody's going to watch, but for next summer as well. There aren't a lot of U23 strikers. Like Jesus Ferreira just misses the eligibility cutoff by like seven days. Duncan McGuire is the only true number nine in this team. Rookie for Orlando City. I think he's 22 years old, so not young. Came through college. Is a, a decent prospect. Um, I know Doyle likes him a lot. I'm not quite as high on him. But has a bunch of goals this year. Just doesn't get a ton of really excellent chances. Doesn't find a ton of those chances. But is a, a traditional kind of fox in the box, number nine. Good frame. Decent instincts. Moves pretty well. I just think he needs to take his game to another couple of levels before he's involved in a ton of these kinds of conversations, but he is certainly a, a beneficiary of the fact that there are just like no other U23 number nines that are pushing to be involved. I bet this is where we see one of those overage spots used for next summer. Yeah. And, and are you with me that that feels like it could be one of the people who are not even like on the bubble, but in the depth conversation, like a Josh Sargent, yeah, is, Sargent, is that Vasquez, Haji yeah, Wright, yeah, like anyone. I bet, I bet just not Pepe or Balogun, because I think yep. those two are going to be at the Copa America for sure. And Berhalter's really only been bringing two nines recently. So I, I would expect Sargent, Vasquez, Wright, maybe Ferreira as well. Like it could be really any of those guys. How weird would it be if it was like all three? That was all three over I love it. I love it. That, that's when you rock out the two striker setup or the four striker <laughs> setup. There we go. Taylor, we're on Bring to something all. here. Let's Bring do them it. all. Uh, I'm also pretty fascinated by Bernard uh, Camungo. I was not familiar with that story, Joe. And I know if you do uh, attend the games, if you do get a chance to talk to the players, I need to know what it's like uh, for him to have been relocated to Abilene, Texas, in the middle of Texas. I feel like that would be a a slight transition. Uh, But it seems like it's gone well in that he is now playing and scoring goals for FC Dallas and, and doing big things and in the midfield conversation. So that makes me very, very happy. And that's a great story to track. Joe Lowry, thank you for... On your return, while jet-lagged, without a ton of sleep, uh, still knowing birthplaces of U23s, tactics of Julian Nagelsmann, many, many other things, a standout stellar performance for you, from you, my friend. Thank you, Taylor. I am a bit shocked that we made it through this whole show, and I'm still saying words that hopefully make sense. Yeah. This was, this was awesome. I am, <laughs> along with you, stoked for this window. Like I, I'm excited to watch some of the, the kids play in my neck of the woods. And also really excited to watch these Germany and Ghana games. It is, uh, like you said, it is the most excited I've been about this USMNT squad since the World Cup finished. And and that's fun. I'm looking forward to it. I'm still shocked we made it through this whole thing. And I'm hopefully saying words that make sense is the motto of the Total Soccer Show. <laughs> so, Joe, thank you for reiterating that here at the end. Thank you again for your performance. Listeners, thank you so much for listening. We will talk to you again tomorrow when I believe we are reviewing the Beckham Netflix documentary. Is that correct? Is that what we have scheduled? That is that is confirmed. And uh, you, listener, know just as much about that as I do because I have not watched any of it yet. That's going to yep. be on my list for today. Yep. I blame the Discord. I've seen the one clip of Posh trying to lie about her transportation to school. I'm going to guess Same. there's more to that documentary than that. <laughs> we'll find out tomorrow. Talk to you then.
Slash it. 